Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Neil Cope, Chief Executive of People Matters HR, an outsourced HR firm located in Greater Manchester. Neil, hello. Hi, Matthew. How are you? I am well. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we'd get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, let's start there. How has this affected uh, your company in particular? I've perhaps had a, a slightly different uh, experience of the uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, being an outsourced HR company, um, we were thrust very, very much into the uh, the forethoughts of all our clients and the wider business community in our area. So it was perhaps one of the, the busiest periods of time we've ever had since mm. uh, the company up 10 years or so ago. Um, we found ourselves being really, really having to be very proactive in what we were doing, in digesting what was coming out on a daily basis, understanding it and being able to put it out to our clients and again, the wider business community. That I think we've got um, we've got some um, um, responsibility to, and we were putting out um, things we've never done before using technology we'd never used before, doing videos and daily briefings and uh, kind of webinars and, uh, and uh, ask the experts really just to to make sure that people were getting the correct information because there was such a lot of misinformation out there from people at first, particularly around furlough scheme and that kind of stuff. Now, what sort of uh, pitfalls are businesses falling into in an HR sense over this period? I think initially there was an awful lot of unknowns. Um, People were wondering whether, at the very beginning, whether they they just had to lay their stuff off, whether they were looking at uh, not paying people, whether they were going straight into um, uh, redundancies. And then uh, the job retention scheme was created and we literally inv- invented something overnight with furlough. Um, and that's how we all felt. And I, I was very, very strong in saying, look, nobody knows the answers to this. And I, I found it um, it was frustrating because I don't think it, didn't, it really mattered which government was in power. Um or who was uh, making the decisions. It was something that had never been done before. Um, and it was really just making sure that um, organisations did the right thing, that they were paying the staff the right money, that they were looking after them. Um, and obviously balancing that with the amount of people who were ill in the early days and people who were shielding. Um, and it was really just making sure that, uh, that, that everybody kind of did the right thing was was strong about it at the same time. Now, as we're entering another period of restrictions coming upon us, and uh, no one has yet uh, known what is going to happen when we get into uh, the bulk of flu season and uh, the winter time, uh, what sort of precautions do you believe businesses should be taking at this point in time? Um, I think again, I think I think. We've, we've kind of almost forgotten very quickly the impact that this actually had. Um, the the lockdown seems to have overshadowed the amount of people who 
died in such a short period of time um, and how easy it is to spread. Now, obviously, the, the way things are spreading now, um, it's very much the younger people. Um, we're having to open businesses back up um, to uh, to keep the economy going. Um, but unfortunately, the one thing I keep seeing is, uh, and I have a fear that the fact that because we've opened pubs, um, that people's reserves are dropped. Um, two or three drinks down, people forget about social distancing, they'll listen to water around. Um, and that's where I see a lot of this going from, and a, a lot of young people bringing this back in. And obviously, bringing that back into the workplace um, has a knock-on effect for industry again. Uh, we've had one or two clients who've had to close sections. Luckily, nobody's had to close a full business yet. Um, but I think unless we're very, very careful, we're into a, a second round, and obviously the flu season is going to be upon us soon as well, so we're going to have that complication um, and coughs and snivels that happen at this time of year anyway. Uh, and I just have a fear that unless everybody actually thinks back to uh, their own responsibilities and the, the actual impact, that we can have a second spike as much as we are working hard um, to try and avoid it. Well, we're here to discuss the concept of leadership, so we should probably move on to that subject. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Oh, the word leader to me, I think it is somebody who um, is strong, uh, passionate, and authentic. And I think if you can combine those things together, uh, you create followers and people give you uh, the respect um, that, I don't know whether respect is due is the right word to, to say, but uh, people actually listen to what you say and take on board your views. And how would you describe your daily leadership style? Um, I'm quite a laid-back leader, to be honest. Um, I have a small team um, around me. Um, we're a small company, there's only six of us, but we look after over a thousand people as an outsourced HR provider. Um, so obviously I'm speaking to um, managing directors, chief executives all day and every day. Um, and I think really my, my style is very much, um, this is me, um, take, you as, take me as you find me. Um, I have a, a slightly wicked sense of humour and I'm not afraid to uh, share that. Um, because we deal with some very, very difficult things and some, some hard things. And I think having a little bit of humour behind what you do is a good thing. Um, and really just being able to be authentic, as I say, and, and, and put across your, your points to people if it's a difficult thing that has to be put across with evidence to support why um, decisions have to be made um, and give people the advice uh, that is right in the circumstances. Where would you say you develop your leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstance? Um, that's a very good question. I, I think I, in, in some ways, and this, this sounds probably reverse, as to some ways, when I was younger, I remember looking at people going, that's the sort of style I wouldn't like. Mm. Um, and there were certain things I kind of put in boxes and thought, I really don't like to be treated like that. And I look at other people around me that don't like to be spoken to like that. And I can see the, 
the relationships between the leader and the uh, their teams and their associates that kind of broke down because of um, very autocratic leadership styles. And, and, I, and I should say, actually, I come from, um, I, I worked for 20 years um, as, a, as a police support staff member. Um, so I suppose I saw both sides in that because I also saw the other side of leadership was uh, of being strong, making decisions um, and, and and actually being authentic. And I think I kind of, I took the best of each of bits that I saw with people. Um, I think I always have admired my, excuse me, my dad's leadership style. Um, he's always been similar to me. He, he's, he's not autocratic. He's always been the kind of guy who explains things to you, lets you make your own decisions and has been supportive. Uh, and I think that is that's an important thing to do. Um, I think I have experienced one or two people that I think have been um, very, very poor leaders that um, deny what they've said. Um, and this isn't in a police environment, I must say, uh, that, that deny what they've said, that um, kind of lead from behind mm. um, and and have a shield around them. And I remember one person we we kind of knew was a, was a bit of a rain cloud of doom. And I think a leadership should motivate and inspire people around them. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next twelve months have in store for People Matters HR? Um, I'm hoping that we continue to grow. We've done very well over the last few months. We've won some amazing accolades uh, this year in terms of um, HR provider of the year um, and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll grow, we can take on more clients and we can share the sort of uh, style and expertise that we've got to kind of make sure that people look after their people well. I mean, our strap line is we are people matters because your people matter. And I genuinely believe that. Um, and uh, and I think I'd like to spread that across more organisations and, and, and try to help them develop. Um, we've taken the, the step to uh, to forsake our existing office and we're actually having one built as a hub um, where our team are now going to be flexible but working from this hub. So we've still got a combination of distance um, because it worked for us quite well within the technology during the COVID time, but also the ability to come together as a team because I think that's that's important. Um, so I, I think it's it's going to be a great challenge. It's going to be an exciting year. Uh, we just hope that um, we're not going to spend the, the year constantly fighting the, the COVID battle. I pray that there's um, a cure um, and the numbers stay down and the death rate stays down and really hope that the economy can bounce back. I, I have a a feeling looking at my client base, which is very much the smaller end of the SMEs from about 80 to 1, um, and out of them, they're actually doing on the whole pretty well. And I hope that backbone of British industry will carry on um, and we'll come out of this thriving. Well, Neil, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program today, and we'll have to have you back at some point in the future. But for now, thank you. Pleasure. That was Neil Cope, Chief Executive of People Matters HR. And now, if you haven't heard it before, Scott Chalner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and... Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've off, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours 
And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. 
Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. The managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your 
career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Lyons. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so, I at that time and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as 
Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kindly put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, 
I would still say the great English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing all the videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was. Uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls up and not just setting balls out. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people... Um, Talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a world cup some world class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities uh, as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics. To be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level, and discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me what he was was a fantastic player he is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill discipline within his, his general life and you need at the top and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player but I compare him 
purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just still uh, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Home City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably 
that's happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.